This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, we dissect the FAA's special FAR. And no air shows, no problem. Check out the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds. We check in on some of the GA manufacturers and how they're weathering the storm. Speaking of manufacturers, Garmin has some new technology available to us. And finally, get out those tissues. AirVenture has been canceled. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Ian? Let's do some Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week is an old friend of ours, Wayne Phillips. He writes a column for flight training about careers, so maybe you've read him if you're a flight training reader. But his part of his job, a company he owns, is called ATOP, and this is really cool. It's like hero for the weekend. You get to go to an airline training facility, and I know we're all not as cool as you who has flown a level D airline sim. Um, <laughs> that was so, great. <laughs> so the rest of us have to pay for it, but, uh, but yeah, he's got a cool program, and he's going to tell us all about it. All right. I look forward to hearing about it. Airline training orientation program, and it's atopjets.com. All right. So, hey, let's get into what's going to be the hardest part of this show for you and I, because this is so confusing. We, we've said that this is coming and now it's here. The special federal aviation regulation that addresses some of the challenges people are having with their certificates and currency and that sort of thing related to coronavirus. That's right. So medical certificates, Ian, the FAA extended that validity period for airmen with medical certificates that expire between March 31st and May 31st. They're now extended through June 30th. But there are a lot of other stipulations and a lot of details that folks really need to delve into on the AOPA.org website. Yeah, also knowledge tests. I mean, this one's fairly straightforward. If your knowledge test expired between March and June, you now have another three months on top of that in order, you know, before you have to take that practical test. You know, that's the 24 months that knowledge test is good for. You've now got an extra three months. Flight instructors, this one's not too bad. We know they expire every 24 calendar months. So if flight instructors, you expire between March 31st and May 31st, you now are good through June 30th. 
But like a lot of other stuff, we're going to sort of qualify this and say, read the SFAR because there are limitations to this. And especially take a look at it if you're looking to make sure your instrument currency is up to snuff, Ian. It gets a little complicated, and rather than explain it to folks here uh, listening on Hangar Tie, I would say it, if you want to make sure that the SFAR applies to you or doesn't apply to you, to please take a look at that. Uh, we've had our APA e-media department take a look at it. We've had our legal department take a look at it, PIC, and the whole organization, basically. So I think that it's worthwhile to really delve into it for specific circumstances. Yeah, that's right. The instrument one is by far the hardest to understand. I will say flight reviews is a little bit easier. The, the FAA is offering a three-month grace period for those whose flight reviews expire between March 1st and June 30th, but you have to meet some specific criteria, including you have to have flown at least 10 hours as PIC in the past 12 months, you have to have been current as of March, you got to take some FAA wings courses, so definitely get into that because you're going to want to know the specifics. And then I, I think the other thing, just before we leave this, that I want to mention is you know, the FAA is one thing, insurance is another. Right. So op specs, other stuff, if you're 135, whatever, you know, it's like, so, you know, there's layers, right? There's always layers. And start with the FAA, but then it's like, you got to call your insurance company, you got to look at your op specs, that kind of stuff. Yeah, because if you don't, if your insurance company makes makes you have a certain amount of proficiency and you're not able to accomplish that, then your insurance might not be valid. So definitely yeah. take a hard look at that. Spend, you know, I was a former airplane owner myself. That is something you really don't want to take lightly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, hey, you were able to, I'm not going to call it break quarantine because, you know, <laughs> it was an official mission. You you, uh, you sprung yourself out of your house and you got to go do something pretty cool over the past couple of days. I did, Ian. You know, the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are doing some honor flights to honor the medical community who's out there battling the coronavirus pandemic. And so they saluted Washington, D.C. and Baltimore over this past weekend. And before that, Ian, they were at and over New York and Philadelphia. And also Saturday, after they flew through Washington and Baltimore, they went on down to Atlanta as well. Hmm. So, uh, yes, I went out and watched this aerial spectacular because we don't have air shows right now. Yeah. So this is the closest thing I came to. And I was over there at the Iwo Jima Memorial, which is really the U.S. Marine Corps War Memorial. It's the real mm -hmm. name. And it overlooks the National Mall in Washington, D.C. and the, in the Washington Monument and the Capitol. So the one thing that was a key takeaway was that it was a beautiful weekend and folks who were supposed to be quarantined like me, you know, or staying <laughs> at home, they were out and about. Now, a lot of them were wearing face masks. A lot of them had children in tow or pets because it was a beautiful day. But here's the thing that when the flights came by in and they circled the area a couple of times because they went out and around the Walter Reed Army Hospital and they, uh, VA, I'm sorry, the VA Hospital, Walter Reed and several other hospitals in the area. They went out and back and did a loop. That's so cool. the, the crowd started clapping and shouting, oh, you know, wow. joyfully. So I wouldn't say that it drowned out the thunder yeah, from right. the, the joint <laughs> uh, U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds and their six jets and the Blue Angels and their six jets, but it was close. So I've been curious because these photos, it's kind of hard to tell. You know, I've seen some of the coverage from New York and then obviously your photos. What kind of altitude do you think they were at? Because obviously we're, we're, you know, used to them going down the deck, you know, in terms of air shows. Obviously they can't do that going over the city. So what do you, what do you think? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hedge on, uh, on the side of, uh, of giving them the benefit of the doubt and say that they were a thousand feet above any person, okay. place or thing. 
But it sure looked like they were down to about 500 feet when they made this <laughs> sweeping turn over my head. Awesome. Now, I, I told you before the show, I was a little bit out of position for that, but I looked up and I was like, oh my goodness, they're like right over my head. It was, it was spectacular. And uh, the folks really enjoyed it. I know the hospital and medical personnel really enjoyed the salute to them. And everyone's in this together, Ian. I mean, it's, that's one thing. It was just, yeah. it was a joy to see. And I was glad that, that they were out there. Now, the other thing that, you know, Hangar Talk listeners will probably appreciate the Blue Angels and Thunderbirds are going to practice no matter what. Yeah. I mean, they are military pilots. They are at the peak of their game, and they need to stay at the peak of their game, just like you and I are pilots, and we really need to be out there getting that, you know, that proficiency where they're doing the same thing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think, you know, if you, I suppose if you didn't know kind of how that stuff worked, you might think, oh, man, they're burning a lot of gas and all that kind of stuff. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they pride themselves on being operational units, and so they got to keep flying, and that's a good way to do it. So. You mentioned, you know, they, they did it for medical workers. And of course, we've talked about this before, but just to revisit a little bit, you know, GA manufacturers have also really stepped up here. And we've detailed a few of those, like I said, but there's a couple more that we wanted to talk about. One is the Kodiak. You know, I mean, this thing is made for rough, unimproved strips carrying the heavy load. And so the folks at Dahar are helping out as well with Kodiak. Yeah, they whipped out their Kodiak 100 Series 2. It's a high-wing EN single-engine turboprop, and it was so new it lacked full paint. <laughs> so <laughs> they, stuffed that, cool. they stuffed that thing full of uh, 240 ventilators and went from Idaho to California to help treat some critically ill patients. And Dyer, which is the parent company of TBM and Kodiak, folks who will remember, they bought Kodiak not long ago. Yeah. Uh, they were definitely involved with that, along with other groups. I mean, this is... a other groups who are who are medical specialists that that have produced the ventilator. So yeah. uh, GA does step up to the plate. Yeah, and it's all over the world. I mean, there's you know this story that we have online talks about two European manufacturers, Pipistrel, which is in Slovenia, and then Technum in nearby Italy, which we know has been hit very hard. Both of those. So even with small airplanes, it's like you can they you know they're doing some helping. Technum I think is manufacturing some masks. And Pipistrol, with their tiny little airplanes, light sport airplanes and gliders and other stuff, have been, what they secured a donation of 100,000 face masks, and they've been transporting some of that stuff. Yeah, and you know, the areas in Europe were really hard hit before the United States, Ian, so that helped a lot of people overseas, and you know, like I said, we're all in it together to win it, so that's mm -hmm. pretty important. Now, I want to also mention a couple of other companies that we don't hear much about, Parrot. Parrot is a drone manufacturer. Now, they lent a hand making some motors for some ventilators. And, you know, we hear about DJI all the time because they're the big ones. But Parrot does make some drones, and they did Annie up to the plate, and they helped out with uh, some, they're calling them engines, but, <laughs> but they're electric motors to, motors. Help, yeah, okay. to help out in this uh, Mac Air project, which is an ambitious project to help people with ventilators. Hmm, that's cool. So, you know, we talked, I think, in the past about Piper and just to kind of circle back to them and some of the other, you know, bigger GA manufacturers that we know of. There's been some question on, you know, how they're weathering it, when they're going to come back big, are they going to come back big? And so we've got a story up now that I, I think speaks to that pretty well, which is that they're really optimistic. Simon Caldicott in particular at Piper, they've been producing airplanes. Interestingly, you know, there's always these sort of unintended consequences. They're producing the airplanes, they're being sent out the door, and then they're sitting because people can't come and pick them up. They can't pick them up because of some, some stay-in-place travel regulations and 
a lot of these aircraft, don't forget, are supposed to go overseas also yeah. or to Asia. Because uh, Piper had a couple of really big orders in the past few years that really just got things cranking for them. That's right. But we're also seeing some slowdowns at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic that are now starting to be not so slow. You know, where things are starting to pick up, like over at Textron Aviation. You know, they had some furloughs earlier, but folks are getting back to work over there. It was a rolling furlough, if you recall. Yep, that's right. So that that's some good news that things are getting back into shape over there. And a couple of the smaller companies, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't talk about it at the time, but Honda, with the Honda Jet apparently temporarily suspended production, they're looking at kind of reopening again. Aviat, they make the Husky. They're saying their, you know, their interest is strong. They're producing airplanes. And so I think these are all really positive signs. There are positive signs in that industry. And speaking of aviation and manufacturers and the industry moving forward, you know, the avionics manufacturers, which had also pitched in a lot, they are not sitting around. There's some new models of avionics coming out, Ian. And I don't know if you wanted to take a moment now to talk about some uh, cool avionics from Garmin that they just released. Yeah, this is the 760 in their Aero series. This thing, you know, okay, I, I'm the first one the past couple of years, I will say that when a portable GPS unit has come out, I have scoffed. I think, oh my gosh, who buys these things? Why would they put any development money into this? Now that we have the iPad, you know, these things are overpriced considering you can get an iPad for like 500 bucks and, you know, but I will say this 760 is, it looks super cool and I really want to try it because it's got some new features that I think people are going to like and it just looks awesome. It does. It it's fun. a. It's got a nice. It's a nice piece of screen real estate, Ian. The Era Seven Sixty. It's got a seven-inch screen. And it's designed to connect with their other devices, including the Garmin Navigators. And the price of it is not. It's not outrageous. I mean, it's high. But look, an iPad Pro is pretty expensive too. But the, the so the Era Seven Sixty is listed at one thousand five hundred and ninety-nine dollars, and it does bring a lot to the aviation table, Ian. And one thing it can do is it can serve as a dedicated standalone GPS for VFR ops or a second display for connected devices. Yeah, that is cool. I mean, and I think, you know, that we've kind of reached this mass where it's like people spend so much time researching, trying to figure out, okay, what piece of equipment is going to talk to which app on which device and how is it going to talk in my cockpit and how are these things going to interact? And Garmin is saying, just forget about it. Just buy a 760. If you've got Garmin stuff in your panel, they're going to talk together. They're going to work together. Don't worry about it. And I think there's some... You know, there's some value in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Synthetic 3D terrain. That's a key thing you know, for situational awareness. That's key. A horizontal situation indicator, an E6B flight computer. This is pretty cool stuff that's all incorporated. And the thing that really blew me away, Ian, was that the Aero 760 could be coupled with certain autopilots for VFR operations. That is way, way cool. That is super cool. I totally agree. Yeah, very cool. So wish them luck. And yeah, if you've got a 760, you got to tell us you know, how it works because it's it, it looks like a lot of fun. I will say in the yin and yang of avionics, you know, it's like a new one comes, an old one has to kind of go by the wayside. And so this is going to be, I think, important for owners. The Garmin 430-530, if you have not upgraded to WAS, you got to do it like now. Because Garmin has announced that uh, starting soon, actually at the end of this month, at the end of May, 
the WAS upgrade will no longer be available for the 43530. That's right. May 29th, Ian, is the last day to ship those units in to be eligible for that WAS upgrade. And after that, you really are going to have to rely on, on a newer unit, you know, mm-hmm. that has the WAS capability. And for folks like me who are instrument students, by the way, I am getting close to passing my <laughs> instrument written test. So good, regular, good. Lis- regular listeners will be interested. But, you know, folks who are instrument pilots really need this capability, Ian, for approaches and, mm-hmm. you know, and to, and to fly safely in the instrument environment. Yeah. So, you know, obviously one thing to consider there is if you've got a used unit, you know, values could potentially go down if it's not WASP because people can't get it upgraded anymore. And so definitely something that you're going to want to look into if you've got one currently, or maybe if you don't feel like you need WASP and you want to buy a used one, maybe you can get one a little cheaper coming up. So yeah, we'll have to see. So Unfortunately, you know, we should have thought this through better, David. Um, we got to end on a sad note, and that is that maybe I think what we assumed was going to happen all along is now official, and that is there will be no air venture this summer. Well, that is a little surprising on some accounts, Ian, but not so surprising on others because, as we just mentioned a minute ago, a lot of European aircraft manufacturers, you know, have just started manufacturing their aircraft again. And now we would expect them to show up with their new models over at AirVenture. And that would be a huge logistical challenge, I would say, to get from Europe to the United States. And when you're looking at the overall health aspect of this, You don't want to bring a lot of people in if you don't know where they've been. Plus, in Wisconsin, there are still stay-at-home orders in place, and they just wouldn't have been vacated soon enough for the AirVenture folks and volunteers to start building the infrastructure for this year's show. Yeah, I thought, you know, Jack Pelton, their head, he he made some comments in the letters, you know, talking about why it was canceled. And, And you're right. I mean, it's like if you look out in kind of the landscape, there's lots of debate right now about whether things should reopen, you know, what's safe in terms of being out in the public. But one thing you can't deny is this show takes months and months to come together. And it takes months and months of volunteers working full time for this thing to be pulled off. And without being open and without being able to prepare in earnest now, there's just no way they could have pulled it off. And so that's, you know, kind of a behind the scenes look that I think a lot of people probably didn't consider when they were you know, thinking about whether or not an air venture was going to happen this summer. Yeah, and uh, Wisconsin, the state of Wisconsin itself has three different phases of reopening that they've plotted out. And and basically, uh, Jack Pelton told Mark Baker in a pilot lounge video, and this is a plug for folks to, you listen, if you're at home, take a look at the pilot lounge videos that we offer at AOPA on the YouTube channel. Uh, Jack was really frank with Mark Baker, and he said that they weren't even in phase one yet of the reopening plans, you know, for the state of Wisconsin, and yet there are three, there are three phases, so the, you know, and they end with mass gathering restrictions going away, and so they weren't even in phase one. Yep, yep. So we're sorry, obviously, to not be able to go to Wisconsin this summer. It's always obviously a fantastic time, but I think next year, you know, we can look forward to bigger and better. I think, you know, they'll have a huge attendance because it'll be bottle up enthusiasm. So to next year, right? That's right. Well, hopefully we'll see each other next year at EAA AirVenture. But and, you know, I might see each other before then. That's right. Like we do every week on Hangar Talk. Uh, That's right. (laughs) Hey, so bringing on our guest, Wayne Phillips. Again, he runs ATOP, this program where the weekend warrior pilot can go and check out what airline training is really like and uh, hopefully not crash the sim.
So Wayne Phillips uh, from ATOP, thanks so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. Yeah. So tell me first a little bit about you and, and your aviation background. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, it all goes way, way back uh, to the 60s. I uh, learned to fly way back when. It was a typical general aviation pilot. Uh, I was in the broadcasting business for many, many years and also functioned as a corporate pilot for the organization. Let's fast forward uh, to the 90s. Started my own company in Colorado, had a 135 up there. Also a hotter balloon company for about 20 years. Wow. And, uh, oh, did uh, 135 activity, was a pilot examiner. And I worked for this outfit called, uh, let's see, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, <laughs> AOPA. I've heard of them. Yeah. I, uh, I started working with the Air Safety Institute, Aviation Safety Institute, uh, ASI, and started doing CFI refresher courses for them back in about 1992. And still do those. I go around the country for uh, ASI doing these FERCs, which is great fun. So doing this for about 20 years. And started uh, doing some uh, contract training over at United Airlines back in the 90 on the 737-200. So I had a lot of things going. Didn't have a real job. So I had a 135 company for a while. A hot air balloon company did uh, work at United as a contract instructor. And then hooked up with the AOPA doing safety seminars around the country, uh, as well as doing CFI refresher courses. And I still do a couple of seminars periodically uh, for the folks at ASI, uh, but uh, still fairly active doing FERCs. So that's sort of the background. And uh, if we talk about the background, we kind of just dovetail right into uh, how this thing called ATOP developed. It stands for Airline Training Orientation Program, ATOP. And I came up with something that people could verbalize easily, you know, ATOP. Oh, that's easy. You know, Airline Training Orientation Program. So back in about 1993, 94, thereabouts, uh, my uh, next door neighbor over at uh, my uh, condo development in Denver was the 737 captain for United. And one day he says, hey, why don't you bring up uh, some really sharp young people? Let's put them in the box about two o'clock in the morning. Let them uh, fly a 737 sim. I was doing some career consulting at Emory Aviation College back in the day in Colorado Springs. And so I uh, found four young lads and I said, let's go fly a 737. So I brought them to United in Denver at about oh dark 30. And Vince put them in the box and we just had a ball. And I saw right there how they were pumped. You know, they were flying 172 RGs and, and 152s, uh, getting their training done, trying to be an airline pilot. But they actually had a chance to experience it firsthand. Wow, I was flying a 737. So I called United the next day and ran into a chap by the name of Rick Wise, who was head of contract training. And I said, you know, Rick, I've got this great idea. It'd be super if United did a short course for aspiring airline pilots that have come in for a day, you know, get some ground school, you know, beat them up on uh, hydraulics and, and uh, pneumatics and all that good stuff and put them in the box, give them some uh, hands-on experience flying a 737. So he invited me down to United and we sat down with the vice president of flight standards by the name of Bill Traub, great guy. And he said, Wayne, this is just a great idea, but we can't do it. You know, we're, we're an airline. We don't have a mission for this. We don't have a budget. Uh, who's going to schedule it? Who's going to teach it? We have ALPA issues and so forth. He says, well, why don't you do it? And I said, what? <laughs> I said, hey, what? He says, yeah, we'll train you as an academic instructor and uh, you can run the uh, program as a contractor. 
So that's how it started back in 1994. We were doing the A-Topic United on the 737-200. And then about a year later, they said, hey, Wayne, how would you like to train some of our contract instructors? And all you have to do is get a type rating. So I got typed on the 737-200 at America West. And then I started doing uh, more contract training over there. So that's how the ATOP started. It was just uh, my next door neighbor. He uh, offered an opportunity for some young people. United picked up the ball and they said, Wayne, you can run the program as a contractor. So that was all well and good. We were just running like crazy, having a good time. United was very gracious. But then we had 9-11. And I got to tell you, frankly, that just spooked, uh, you know, a lot of folks, uh, not the least of which was United. And they preferred that uh, we not bring strangers into the training center any longer. And uh, it is what it is. Well, we hooked up with Continental then for about nine years. And then uh, Continental merged with United and we're back to square one in about, uh, oh gosh, uh, 2010 thereabouts. I hooked up with American Airlines. Uh, one thing led to another. I was doing some training down in that neck of the woods at flight safety and I con contacted American. And I said, I got this program. <laughs> Would you be interested? And lo and behold, he says, yeah, come on down. We'll make room for you and you can run your program at American. Well, at the same time, about nine years ago, a friend of mine in Orlando said, hey, you ought to do your program at JetBlue. And I said, well, I'm a Boeing guy. If it ain't a Boeing, I ain't going, you know. Uh, and uh, so I hooked up with JetBlue and they says, oh, don't worry. We'll come and train you on the Airbus. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? So uh, about nine years ago, I went through ground school and, and uh, became essentially an academic instructor on uh, the Airbus 320. So we go both ways now. You know, we've been doing this for a number of years where we offer either the trailing edge of technology, the 737, or the leading edge of technology, the uh, Airbus 320. So I go both ways. And it's not uncommon for our students to uh, take both courses. You know, they'll say, ah, I want to try the 737. And a year later, they call and let's try the Airbus for fun, you know. Uh, so both airlines have been really, really gracious. And it's, it's fun. And the airplanes are so totally different. And the environment, you know, the environment is very, very different. American is very uh, old line, you know, very reserved. The facility is, uh, you know, quite, uh, uh, quite, uh, what's, what's the kind word? Um, historic? It, historic. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good <laughs> word. Okay. It's legacy, you know. Yeah. And yeah. whereas JetBlue is modern, crisp and clean, you know, and, and, uh, you know, great lighting and a, a fabulous uh, cafeteria. So we go both ways and, you know, we simply market by word of mouth, a little bit of Facebook, a little bit of, uh, Flight Training Magazine back in the day. And I would tell you uh, seriously that uh, the 7.3 is the more popular airplane. People just, you know, love that airplane. And hey, if I'm going to fly, I want a wheel, not a stick, you know. So not to, not to uh, you know, say anything negative about the, uh, the Cirrus drivers, you know, but uh, the 7.3 is, is a lot more popular. So that's how it started. So what kind of person takes the the course i mean is are these all aspiring airline pilots or are they kind of weekend flyers who just want to say they've done it and just try it i mean w what's the makeup like yeah well you know when we started this thing we thought it would be a great outreach uh, to the smaller schools and universities you know you have your ember riddles and unds and purdue's and so forth and and these schools have some really great facilities on campus, they've got simulators, they've got FTDs, they have advanced training. But what about the smaller schools like Ames Community College or Northwest Michigan or places like that? We thought that we would be 
pretty much organized to service these smaller schools and universities by giving them an opportunity to send their students to a major airline facility for a couple of days, get some advanced training on turbine systems, CRM, threat assessment, automation management. We do all that in the ATOP. Well, it kind of took a, a, a huge detour. I would say that about 50 to 60% of our attendees these days are good old GA pilots who have this on the bucket list. You know, they want to fly a 737 and see what it's like. And so these folks come in and we treat them like a new hire and they just have a blast. You know, we give them the ground school for a full day, you know, about 10 hours of ground school. So we really beat them up just like they do in the airline facility. Then we give them an FTD session for startup procedures and flows on Saturday afternoon. And then Sunday, we put them in the box for two hours, one hour as observer, one hour as crew. So I would say certainly slightly more than half are just Walter Mitty GA guys that want to fly and have some fun, you know. Uh, I would say about uh, 35% to 40% are thinking about an airline career. As a matter of fact, when people think about it, we generally push them over the edge. <laughs> you know, they, they take the course, they say, oh my gosh, I want to do this. And uh, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite students is a young lady by the name of Sarah Rovner. Sarah's just a, a nifty lady from uh, the Houston area. She took our course about five years ago, and she was an IT expert. I mean, she was doing network engineering and, and all that good stuff. And she takes the course, and she says, I got to do this. I got to do this. So lo and behold, within a year, she's uh, flying at SkyWest Airlines, gave up her career as an IT expert, became a captain in about two and a half years over at SkyWest. That lady is now flying 767s for United. So she, she was uh, inspired and uh, she was motivated by her experience at American on the 73A top, and she just went and did it. And she's one of many that represents some great success stories for us. Yeah. But, you know, it's something for the young person who is thinking about an airline career to put something in their resume. You know, they've had some advanced training. We offer the high altitude endorsement option as part of that. So it puts something in their resume that they can talk about in an interview. And so I'm proud to say, uh, Ian, we've got folks flying at American right now that took the course back, you know, 10 years ago. And we have them at Delta and we have them at JetBlue, and we have them at SkyWest and places like that. One of my other protégés is now flying a 777. I had him at the ATOP. He's an Embry-Riddle graduate about four years ago. Helped him get his job flying Learjets in uh, Detroit, and he was just hired by Southern in the last 45 days or so, and he was so impressive they put him in the 777. So here he is, like four or five years after graduation, and now he's flying a 777. So those are some really great success stories, you know, that we are very proud of. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, lots of Walter Mitty guys are doing it. Uh, it's just fun. It's something they can put in their logbook. They have bragging rights around the hangar. You know, yeah, there I was at uh, flight level 350 and the, the door came off and uh, I, I put that airplane <laughs> in uh, a rapid descent and we saved 150 passengers and just just a fun thing you know some people like to go you know skiing some people climb mountains well this is a mountain that uh, folks can climb if they want to try it out and i'd also say about 10% of the folks that come in are actually working professionals they're either working for a regional airline or a 135 operation or a military pilot we have had several military folks come in over the years 
I just want to get close to a major airline for a couple of days and see what life is like, you know. And so it's a, it's a potpourri and just a lot of nifty people, and it's just so much fun. And uh, we take a very, you know, very laid back, fun filled approach to the ground school. A lot of chuckles, a lot of, you know, ha ha ho ho. We're just having a great time with these folks. So it's not just nine or 10 hours of dry systems. We just have a, a great time with these guys uh, and ladies, by the way. And so uh, we've had some real, you know, interesting feedback. I've had a number of uh, JetBlue flight attendants take the course. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah, just for a little bit of insight, what goes on behind the cockpit door, you know. And so yeah. So uh, we've had just a number of JetBlue flight attendants. And now the word's gotten out and United flight attendants are coming in. You know, not a bunch of them, you know, a few here and there. But uh, the ladies have been very gracious in posting online at their various forums about this opportunity. So we're getting, uh, you know, quite a bit of interest from flight attendants, which is kind of cool, you know, yeah. so. So that's the shtick. You know, that's it. We like to say, Ian, we have three objectives for every program. Number one, it's career education, first and foremost. We like to say that, you know, we're going to demystify what goes on here. So, uh, you know, you're a GA guy or a GA lady and you're thinking about the airlines or maybe not. You know, what goes on? Well, number one, it's career education, what they're going to be experiencing as a new hire, right? Number two, it's genuine introductory training. You know, this is not just a golly gee whiz uh, Disneyland ride, as we call it. You know, there are a number of organizations that will put you in the simulator for an hour or two and charge a couple hundred bucks. And you get to play airline pilot for a couple of hours, right? Well, this is genuine introductory training. It's 10 hours. It's very much like recurrent training, you know, that goes on at the airlines. We review all the systems, right? We go all through the uh, performance procedures and such. And then we let them fly according to airline procedures. You know, we have call-outs and we have profiles that we fly and so forth. So it's a real good look at uh, the airline game. Plus, if somebody is thinking about going on the Southwest one of these days, they'll be in class on 737 systems. And they will know about the A and B hydraulic system, right? And the six fuel pumps and all that good stuff when they show up to class. So they have kind of a primer if they ever decide to enlist with a 737 operator or an Airbus operator, right? And one of the things we kind of tease him about, let's say that uh, Ian Twombly takes our course and he decides he wants to be an airline pilot and he's going to apply to American. And so when he's being interviewed, Ian says, when the question comes forth, so Ian, why, why American Airlines? Why did you choose us? You say, well, I took this ATAP course a couple of years ago and I spent two days in the training center, flew SIN number seven. And, you know, I walked away so impressed with that company. It's dedication to excellence. It's dedication to its customers and employees that I decided right there that American had to be at the top of the A-list. So have you gotten feedback from folks who have taken the course that, it, that it's something they have used and, and they feel like it's been a, a positive point for them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Particularly at JetBlue. JetBlue is very, very personable. I work with some really great people there. And many of my graduates will tell me that, well, there I am in the interview uh, at JetBlue and even American, and uh, they, they see this in, in the logbook and they say, well, well, tell me about that. You know, what was your experience? What did you learn? You know, so I, I will be very clear in saying that this does not get anybody a job, yeah. you know, uh, so we're, we're just put, put that right up front. You know, this doesn't help you get a job, but it certainly does, you know, give you something to talk about in the interview. It works really well on the regional level in particular. Yeah. 
because if you're applying the SkyWest or uh, Eagle or, or some other carrier, you think about the average person applying to a regional airline, unless they're going to a Purdue or uh, a UND or Aviation College. What's their background, Ian? If they're applying first time to an airline, what's their background? Could be a local flight school or, yeah. They were probably a CFI. Yeah. They were uh, a CFI, you know, they're working in Skyhawks and, and Warriors and, and such like that. So chances are they've had very little, if any, exposure to advanced systems, advanced procedures, CRM, and all of that. Well, when you put this in your resume that you've had two days of introductory training on the Airbus 320 at JetBlue conducted by ATOP, that kind of uh, sends a signal that, well, hey, this guy's got maybe a little more insight, a little more background, you know, that prepares him for this uh, next uh, journey, you know, into the regional airlines. So uh, we've had that kind of feedback for a long, long time that uh, it does help in the interview. So I'm curious about the time in the sim, because obviously when, when in normal airline training, somebody gets to the sim, they've been through the FTD, they've been through the flows, they, sure. you know, they come with a, with a basis of understanding where you guys don't have the time necessarily to do that. So how do you practically, I mean, when somebody sits down, how do you make it both effective time so they, you know, they don't have to waste time, you know, an hour learning how to start the thing. I and mean, it's like, how do you, you know, you mentioned the call outs and it's like, how do they know to do all that? Are they airline instructors that have been sort of primed to know what to help them on or, or what, what actually happens? Well, I'm, I'm the guy, let me explain. Number one, the startup procedures are all done on Saturday. Okay. Uh, the FTDs are really good training devices. And we explain a very simple flow. You know, the, the flow of starting an airliner, if you use the Boeing flow, it's top to bottom, left to right. On the uh, jet blue is bottom to top, <laughs> top to bottom, bottom to top. <laughs> the flows are very, very easy that we use. We use the Boeing flow on the 737 simulator, and we use the uh, jet blue flow uh, on the uh, 320. Hmm. If you follow the flow precisely, you can't get lost. You know, it's a roadmap to starting up the the aircraft. You know, and so people walk away and say, "Gosh, is that all there is?" <laughs> you know, yeah. wow. and because they've got a pretty good foundation. You know, it's the yellow and blue and the green hydraulic system, Yeah. you know, and we get to hydraulics, they kind of say, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. So the startup procedures, and that's one of the things we demystify, it's not that difficult because if you follow the roadmap, you follow these flows, you start it up. Now, in the sim itself, number one, we do have a little profile. It's basically some pattern work. You know, we take off at either Orlando or Dallas. We get to about 4,000 feet. We do a crosswind turn, and then we do a long downwind, and then we descend from uh, 4,000 down to 2,000. We slow the airplane down on the downwind, make a right-hand turn on the base, and then we give them the intercept for the localizer course, and they fly it. Okay. Hmm. It's an airplane. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's an airplane. The same thing you do in a Cessna 172 in terms of airspeed management, energy management, and so forth. You do the same thing. Hmm. Now, before they get in the sim, we uh, give them uh, an hour's worth of chair flying. They're going to sit in front of a cockpit management trainer with their partner, and they're going to go through the profiles. Now, to facilitate the profiles, we give everybody a script, right? It's a word-by-word, -word, line line-by-line script that is uh, addressed by either the first officer, the captain, or the instructor, which is me. I play the part of ATC. So they follow the script, and they practice it before they get in the sim. 
So they have a, what we call a chair flying session, you know, where they're going to watch their colleagues. We take four in a group. We normally take eight pilots in a class, but it's a group of two. And when two pilots are up front in the cockpit management trainer, the other two are sitting behind them, uh, working them through the profile as ATC and instructor. So they get to see it and do it four times, this very simple profile before they get into the simulator. Then when they go to the sim, they're in the box for two hours, one hour as observer, one hour as crew. And we give them what's called the cheat sheet. This is just a, a rough outline of the callouts. They clip it on the yoke and uh, they can refer to it uh, during their flight. You know, so there's not a whole lot of memory required, but uh, the callouts are are very simple. You know, flaps up, set speed, all that good stuff. It's it's not brain surgery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's kind of fun when I talk to the flight attendants and they go through this and they say, "Gosh, is that all there is?" Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's, like, it's not yeah. it's not major. You know, we pilots <laughs> like to you know really create this mystique that oh my gosh, you have to be a superhuman being to fly an Airbus. You know, yeah. no, not really. You press the buttons and the Airbus flies itself pretty much, yeah. you know, but, uh, <laughs> but it's great fun. But, uh, you know, all I can tell you, you know, we have a, a great Facebook page at facebook.com slash atopjets. We also have a closed group of graduates called Atop Grads. And uh, if folks are interested in seeing, you know, what the, what the public thinks about the program, there's lots of commentary on our Facebook pages that I think illustrate the fact that this is probably useful and helpful and fun information. Yeah. So I suppose the question that everybody, you know, goes in, well, all the GA pilots, I should say, the ones who want to stay GA, that they go in there asking themselves is, you know, could I, you know, it's, it's the, the hero moment. Could I actually fly this thing? So, oh, sure. Yeah. So, so I'm curious about, uh, about what, what you think their impressions are when they leave. Do they, do they leave feeling like, oh my gosh, this thing is, it's quite the beast or it's like, ah, not so bad. I could do that. You know, I have a sense it's more like, well, it's not quite as difficult as I thought it was going to be, you know, and uh, uh, we certainly don't want to talk about, uh, you know, situations where if the crew passes yeah, out, right. they take over. Right. We're not going to go down that road. But, you know, if you really put on that that thinking cap, you know, if uh, if one crew member does have a health issue, you know, in a 7-3 or an Airbus, you know, one of our graduates could conceivably as a certificated pilot. Uh, be of some support. You know, they're familiar with where the gear handle is, where the flap handle is and so forth, you know, so they could conceivably be of some support in in a very uncomfortable circumstance where a crew member has been disabled for some reason. You know, are we going to say that, well, you know, they could take over and land the airplane themselves? Yeah. You know, well, I don't want to go down that road, yeah. but they know enough, I think, <laughs> you know, to be uh, to be of some support in that situation. And you've heard of those isolated circumstances sure, where sure. a crew member does have a health issue. And thankfully, there's a deadheading pilot in the back that flies for an airline, and that person maybe is summoned to come up, or maybe a company pilot's in the back just taking a ride someplace. But, uh, you know, I have no doubt that if there was a situation that, that required some support, you know, that our pilots could conceivably provide that support if the airline and the pilot running the airplane was comfortable with that. And so the landing, I mean, everybody gets a chance at a landing, I assume. Oh, sure. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Which has got to be the highlight for a lot of them. So uh -huh. 
Tell me about some of the yeah yeah. Tell me about some of the landing experiences. I'm I'm curious what the range is there. I'm sure there's everything from you know greasers to you know can't use the airplane afterwards. But I'm curious. Yeah, you know it's always fun, and and we don't care. You know we don't care. A simulator is a is a training device. You know you're not there to become a competent 737 or Airbus pilot. You know you're there for the experience. I will tell you, I've had instructors at the airlines watch my students. And they're dismayed. They say, how the heck <laughs> did they do that? You know? yeah, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, you know, the biggest challenge is the flare. You know, uh, if you're flying a Skyhawk, you flare in the last five or seven feet or so. Mm-hmm. In an airliner, you got to start flaring maybe about 50 feet above the runway. You know, start arresting the sink rate and kind of let it schmooze on down, you know. But uh, the biggest challenge, I think, is is flaring too late. And then there's that mm. uh, impact where you crack the runway, you know. But there is a telltale sign that the landing was a bad one. And that's when the simulator shuts off. Oh. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> if, if, there, if there is indeed a 0.7 on the Richter scale landing, which are typically of my landings, you know. But if there's a very firm, firm landing that the sim says, I can't even take this, yeah. you know. It comes off of motion, and uh, you get the uh, the beep, 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 hey, everything stopped, oh, everything no. stopped. Oh, no. I will tell you that's probably happened less than five times okay. in the 20 years we've been doing that's this. That's good. That's good. You know, and, uh, <laughs> but I will also now, if you were flying, Ian, if I see that we're going to meet our demise, you know, you're going nose down toward the runway at 5,000 feet a minute, mm-hmm. I have a magic button that says, freeze mm-hmm. <laughs> okay so mm-hmm. so so you know we will not damage the simulator mm. you know and like i said it's probably less than a half a dozen times that i had to use that i think the biggest challenge is altitude control oh uh, yeah you know yep. because we fly at generally four or five thousand feet in the pattern and i try to tell the folks this is nothing but a big old video game you know we've got the flight director set up for them right and there's a horizontal pink line if you put that in the airplane symbol, you're golden, mm-hmm. all right? You're golden. You've got your altitude. If you fly the approach, you keep the pink line in the airplane symbol. On the glide slope, you're golden. You are golden. So now if that pink line goes up a little bit, you're supposed to pitch up. Or if you see it go down, you pitch down. So it's just a big old video game, right? And so you keep the pink line in the airplane symbol. Some folks have trouble doing that. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and my famous statement in training is, hey, pink in the wings, Ian. Pink in the wings. <laughs> uh, oh, it's three inches above your airplane symbol. Pitch it up. Oh, okay, fine. You know? <laughs> but I would say that's the most common error is that people just have difficulty, you know, having the, the smoothness of keeping that pink in the wings. Now, if we have somebody who is, uh, you know, really a novice this past weekend, down that American, meaning uh, just the other day, we had a gentleman with uh, 16 hours of flight time. Oh my gosh. 16. Holy cow. This guy greased it. This guy was terrific. Terrific. Just amazing talent. Just terrific. But if we got somebody that just is having such a difficult time, I'll say, hey, tell you what, press that button that says Command A, and that's the autopilot, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I tell them, now you're flying like an airline pilot. Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> because, right. You got, you got the pilot, big pension. So, you got the big salary. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you, and you fly on the autopilot almost from 1,000 feet or 2,000 feet after departure to short final, or at least, uh, you know, at the final approach fix, then you maybe turn it off. But, you know, for the most part, 
you know, when you're climbing out to altitude, when you're cruising along between, uh, you know, Denver and San Diego, you're on the autopilot, you know, and uh, the descent is on the autopilot. So, but most of our students, they do want to hand fly, you know, that's, sure. that's the, the, uh, the attraction. So uh, it's, it's fun. I gotta tell you, it's, it's a hoot. So which, which airplane I'm curious, do you think is easier to hand fly for beginners? Oh, the Airbus, ah. the Airbus. Yeah. The Airbus has got what Boeing calls control wheel steering. So if you're flying the Airbus and you get the attitude you want, you know, you got the pink and the wings. If you take your hand off the stick, it stays there. It stays there. Yeah, you know, you might need to tweak it a little bit, just a little tap here and there. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the Airbus, there's no trim. Hmm. Okay. There's a trim wheel you set for takeoff at a certain a value. But once you get airborne, you never touch the trim. It's always in trim, you know. So if you have configuration changes and such, you know, there's no trimming. There's no uh, pitch change. The airplane is just, you know, so docile and just a really joy, real joy to fly. The 73 is is a handful. You know, there's a lot going on there. It's a heavy airplane, but, uh, you know, the Airbus is certainly a very light touch. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And so how can people find out more about you? You mentioned the Facebook page, uh, website, and then how often do the classes run, that sort of thing? Yeah, you betcha. We uh, we uh, have a, a website, atopjets.com, A-T-O-P-J-E-T-S.com. And we think it's a good value because you're getting two days of training you're getting at least an hour of uh, training in the FTD, an hour of training in uh, the uh, SIM, plus uh, an hour of observation in the FTD and an hour of observation in the SIM. You know, so it's uh, it's under $500 for the two days. That's good. Very good. But the challenge we have right now is we are filled up pretty good. Oh, you know, wow. We only take eight pilots per class. Yeah. And a lot of the issue is sim availability at the airlines, you know, and they've been very gracious. Yeah, I was going to say with them training so much, it's it's got to be hard to get in there. Oh, yeah, yeah you betcha. And, of course, that means we get the dreaded ODARK 30 sim probably 60% of the time, you know. So we're, we're in the box from, you know, midnight to 4 o'clock or 3 to 7 a.m., something like yeah. that. But uh, for a once-in-a-lifetime experience, most people are pretty accommodating. You know, they can, they can suck it up for that, that one yeah, time. Yeah, I bet. But, uh, so, so right now we we have what's called open classes. These are classes where we take eight pilots from any kind of uh, resource or source. You know, these are people just like you or anybody else that uh, hey, I want to take this course. When's the next class? Well, our next class, that's what we call an open class, will be in September. Wow. Okay, so we're filled up through the spring and summer right now. So we could take uh, one or two or three people you know, and put them in a class uh, sometime late this summer or early fall. Having said that, though, if we do have a group that has eight pilots, we will try to shoehorn in an extra class someplace earlier. And so we have had a number of schools uh, contact us. We have a great relationship with Embry-Riddle. Mm -hmm. They put together a class twice a year. We have flying clubs that get together. We had uh, eight guys from Austin, Texas, just this past weekend. They all kind of fly together. They're all part of a large yeah, group. Yeah, very cool. And so we get eight pilots that uh, come to the table and say, hey, we have eight pilots that would like to get the training. We will do our best to find some kind of a weekend to shoehorn this thing in, you know, but uh, it uh, it depends on the airline availability and so forth. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that's an option for flying clubs and groups and schools and and so forth if they'd like to pursue this thing because then we could probably do something as early as June, 
but our open classes, so to speak, one by one signing up would be about uh, September. That's fantastic. Good, good. Well, Wayne, thanks. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Okay, Ian, when am I going to see you? Um, yeah, I, well, you definitely may. I'm like, well, geez, yeah, it's like, I don't know, Orlando. I think it would be yeah, hard to choose. Yeah. And yeah, so I can see yeah, why people yeah. go back to, to fly the other airplane. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not trying to sell you anything here, sir, but, uh, you know, uh, it's always fun to, uh, you know, have friends and neighbors that I've known for a while, you know, uh, come and take the course. Uh, another interesting thing we've seen, we've been doing this since the 90s, okay? Recently, this past year, we've had about three or four folks take the course again. The last time they took the course was 1995, oh, and that's yeah. always kind of a hoot, yeah. you know, to bring back some of our graduates and see what they've been doing, you know, for the last 20 years or so. So That's very cool. Your buddy Mike over there, Mike has taken the yep. course, yep. and I think Tom, Tom took the course way back when. Yep. We did it together way back when, and and we, we did not have to call the sim techs either, the fish <laughs> yeah. simulator, when they flew it. <laughs> I wish you would have. That would have been, a, you know, and then something we can razz yeah. them on, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's always the the uh, the indicator that it was not a sim session that went well. If, if the sim tech has to be yeah. called, you know, to reset oh, yeah. everything. But, yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> but Ian, it's a pleasure talking to you. Uh, you too. Yeah, yep. a lot of good luck to you, and and appreciate uh, your support of the program. And uh, hopefully, we'll see you around the patch. Thanks, Wayne. Appreciate it. So David, like I mentioned when we teased in Wayne, you have flown an airline sim before. So how did you do? I did pretty good, Ian, but I had a lot of great coaching. Okay. <laughs> I tried, tried one at the UPS facility uh, when we had our our, um, our high school symposium over there, and also at United when we had our high school symposium there as well. And these were were big jet airliners, and I really enjoyed it. You know, with the proper coaching, Ian, anyone can do this. I really feel strongly about that. If you're a pilot, I think you could do it. Cool. Very cool. Well, it's on my bucket list, so maybe someday. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes and on Spotify. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.